0: Namaste. I want to welcome today a very special guest, Mr. Vallabh Banshali to my show. Banshali ji, namaste and welcome.
1: Namaste. Uh,
0: he is a very interesting person, uh, a very accomplished industrialist, very successful in the business world, long time meditator, vipassana, a philanthropist. Uh, with very clear ideas on education, on India, and, and so many other things we'll talk about. So, just to give a brief background of Banshaliji, uh, he is a chairman and co founder of Enam Group. Uh, he's an investment banker, uh, venture capitalist, an expert in the capital markets, uh, member of many of, the, of India's uh, investment and financial industry boards and, and uh, institutions. Uh, but just to give you an idea, the Bombay Stock Exchange, a trustee of the Bombay Stock Exchange is sitting on various committees. What interests me uh, about Banshali in particular is the way he has integrated this Lokika world of accomplishment and success with his vipassana and adhyatmic world, which is exceedingly serious part of his life. It is not like uh, uh, during the day I do this and uh, sometime in the evening I do that or weekends. But he carries it with him. He carries this deep conviction and lifestyle uh, with him. So, I want to take this opportunity and uh, bring out some of these facts, some of these aspects. So, Manishali ji, I am very happy to have you on the show. Uh, thank you very much, uh,
1: Dr. Sir. Uh, I hold you in the highest esteem. You inspire me in so many different ways. There aren't many days when I don't remember you or don't think of you so it's an absolute delight honor privilege uh, to be talking to you and uh, it's very humbling for me to hear you talk about me because you know your life is such a beacon uh, to me and so many people but uh, it's an absolute delight uh, to be on this show Uh, i can only say that uh, i've been uh, very privileged uh, to have come across uh, people of your kind uh, different uh, intervals in my life, almost very, very regular intervals. Uh, so, uh, if people find anything attractive in me or anything good in me, is clearly the influence of several, several great people whose uh, paths, uh, you know, I crossed.
0: That's uh, very generous of you, Banchali uh, uh, So, I, I wanted to uh, uh, ask, what in your life would you attribute your phenomenal success. Is it childhood? Is it some people who inspired you? Is it a particular uh, worldview that you held on to? Can you tell us a little bit about your journey of success and how you would explain it to somebody?
1: A uh, few things come to my mind. One is uh, that uh, I wanted to do work that meant something to me. Uh, while I qualified as a Chartered Accountant, few years of accounting practice left me drained of any enthusiasm, so I was looking for something that would uh, be fulfilling. So I think doing fulfilling work is very, very important to me and I was ready to take risks for that fulfillment. The second thing is uh, it's a very negative kind of uh, expression, but I didn't want to be left behind. Somehow it doesn't work with me, so I have to do well Uh, not so much for the sake of doing well, but uh, being treated second class, and this is a very honest expression, but that has always egged me on. And the third thing maybe is that I always looked for very simple, generic, deep equations in the way nature works. So I'm uh, continuing to be a student of uh, those rules, those formulae, which kind of harmonize everything, you know, at the micro level, at macro level. And I think some of that pursuit uh, probably helped me in in, uh, doing some of the things right.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. So, uh, when did you get interested in Vipassana? How long has this been part of your life? And can you tell us a little bit about uh, your journey with Vipassana?
1: So I lost my mother when I was very young. I was 13 years old, and she was ailing for a while. Uh, She had a terrible disease, and uh, I saw her suffer as a young child, and I was very, very attached to her. That kind of uh, made me pensive, and uh, I lost my sleep, and I've never been uh, good at sleeping ever since. So for 25 years, uh, you know, from that age 12 or 13, I was seriously seeking. I must also mention that when I was around 19, I went through a phase uh, where I was very depressed. Uh, I didn't want to face the world. And uh, because of uh, the collection of books that my great father had, uh, you know, created for us, I picked up Gita, Srimad Bhagavad Gita, Gita Pravachan by Acharya Vinoba Bhave, and that influenced me tremendously. So this pursuit that came from an emotional distress became even more meaningful when Gita worked for me like magic. And I must share with your audience that uh, my takeaway from Gita was uh, that truth matters. So how there was a sense of falsehood that we want to project in our life, and once we drop that, how empowered you feel. So admitting your ignorance uh, and uh, admitting your status in life That kind of uh, was an explosion in my mind, and I turned from a middling kind of student to academically a very accomplished student. And that never left me that, oh, there is some rule in the world that uh, truth is empowering and so on. But so that pursuit became very serious and I read into, you know, Jain scriptures and Hindu scriptures and Upanishads and so on, and I found all of that very fascinating. But yet there were questions. Uh, So I enjoyed reading various shlokas from Upanishad or some of the Jain scholars' work. But they didn't give me complete answers. So I had heard about Vipassana for a while, but I could not go to their course. In 1989, I took my first course. And by the fifth day, everything started to make tremendous sense for me. So a lot of the principles and axioms that I had, you know, memorized by heart and that inspired me, they suddenly came to life and like truth was on my palm. So those uh, first five days of struggle and then, you know, this enlightenment kind of situation uh, that I experienced uh, um, confirmed my Vipassana pursuit forever since. So it's now been uh, close to 28 years and uh, shortly i take my month-long course in Vipassana. So it's been extremely fulfilling uh, as you know yourself and you are a personal meditator too that um, how simple, how direct, how non-ritualistic that whole meditation practice is. And uh, I have benefited immensely. I can probably say that I don't have any questions left to ask of the universe. I can probably see most of it. So it's been extremely good for me
0: this is uh, this is an amazing uh, an, uh, amazing account of an amazing journey and i thank you for it this is very precious for us to hear this sort of thing so uh, pre vipassana you found separate answers and vipassana integrated them made them reality lived actually experiential yes. from theoretical yes. shlokas and all to an actual embodied experience and once it's embodied Absolutely. it's like uh, It's me and mine and it is so inseparable that uh, there is just no doubt about it. It's not a question of intellectually arguing with somebody. It's as real as anything can be. So, you've achieved that and that is absolutely uh, phenomenal. So, this is an area where we have commonality. In fact, uh, one of the books I am writing is on uh, uh, the mindfulness field in the west. Uh, The whole vipassana being renamed mindfulness, I am not too happy about it because when they say mindful, you know, mind can be full of all kind of things, and uh, yes. uh, it's more mind emptying also. So I have a, uh, I'm, I'm writing about uh, the whole history, uh, especially focusing on what is not acknowledged, the, the whole Indian contribution, uh, 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 and uh, the this is part of my mind sciences, mind sciences kind of. Uh, Initiative, uh, which is very sure. dear, to, which is very dear to me. So we have a lot to share and a lot to lot to talk about uh, in this area. So uh, how does so tell us about the foundation, the 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 global Vipassana Foundation? What does uh, what does it do? Uh, what is its goal? So people can understand. Sure,
1: the primary purpose of all Vipassana bodies, uh, whatever they are called, is primarily to make people aware of uh, this uh, what we call renewed availability of its purest form in this case uh, it had two or three objectives uh, one was to show gratitude to burma myanmar and the great teacher who was uh, who taught uh, acharya goenka and uh, so to do that we created a burmese uh, uh, structure and a grand one so the global vipassana pagoda in near bombay is a replica of the world famous shwedagon pagoda and in that uh, we have an art gallery uh, which uh, you know depicts buddha's life and the contribution of sayaji ubakin the second was uh, that we built a meditation hall uh, within the pagoda uh, which is the largest uh, hollow stone dome in the world and therefore we made it a marvel. We made it a double marvel. The vipassana is a marvel and then you know, that meditation hall is a physical symbol of uh, the vastness and how you can be on your own in the true Shamar sense. Uh, so, that hollow pagoda which is pillarless and seats 10,000 people is absolutely wow. a grand monument.
0: I would like to come and visit it. Where is it now? You must uh, it's near Bombay and I'll be very
1: happy to accompany yes. you there. So I we would need love about half a day to. yeah, we need about half a day and uh, it's extremely fulfilling experience. Yes. Yes. The third objective is that uh, we have all kinds of people, so you know, for some of them get attracted by the physical monument, but once they come there, uh, they become more curious about Vipassana and we also offer Anapan courses there, which is about a half an hour course. And you get, uh, you know, familiar, you get introduced to this very basic uh, course, which is the first course in Vipassana, you know, the first phase of Vipassana for the first three days. And that for the first time for most people who take that course uh, is an experience that there is a witness element in us and they can discover that. So a good fraction of the people who take that course eventually take also the longer Vipassana 10 day course. So I think those are the three objectives, and uh, I think uh, we're doing well in the meeting those objectives.
0: Excellent. This is this is excellent. So, uh, Bansaliji, how would you uh, how would you uh, consider uh, dharma in general and vipassana in particular uh, operative in business decision making? Uh, because you know, I uh, I find that what one of the things remarkable about you is the integration. I find a lot of people. Uh, who in an ashram setting, they have a certain switch which is ashram switch. And then there is a worldly rat race, wall street switch setting. And the two are kind of, it's almost like bipolar. And they are not uh, integrated. So, they are almost, they are talking differently, they are embarrassed. It's almost like their worldly uh, professional life in that context. They are in denial about uh, their meditative life as if there is something wrong so there is a disconnect i notice this a lot among our people uh, and some of them have been pursuing both successfully but separately in your case i think one of the important things to find out for our audience is how you brought the dharma into your business life what what are some of the things people can do with dharma or should do as part of their business professional decision making
1: i find this uh, Rather intriguing and actually silly when people, uh, as you rightly said, uh, wear different masks. Because while those two parts can be different, you are the same entity. And whenever you will have this bipolar kind of uh, lifestyle, you will be miserable. Whereas Dhamma is all about happiness. It's only when you have integrated uh, integration in all the aspects of life—physical, mental, intellectual, professional, financial, etc that you will have harmony within and you will be able to see harmony outside. So I think uh, I can't really see, I mean, I can't remember a moment when I took a conscious decision to integrate them, but that happened easily. And it may be something to do with my experience uh, when I was around 19 and I read Gita and uh, interpreted the teaching as one of, uh, you know, basing your life in truth. And for me, truth, uh, I define as uh, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, and that's truth. So when you are straightforward about things, uh, life is very, very simple. And uh, that's what we brought to our business. uh, And Yoga Karma of the excellence, is something that is uh, expected of anyone who wants the world to take a serious note of that person. Uh, Why should the world bother about, uh, you know, I mean, if you're not pursuing excellence, it's only a matter of time, they'll drop you. So I think based on those two principles, uh, I conducted my business and I was extremely lucky to get partners who contributed themselves with their philosophy, but they listened to some of my abnormal demands and uh, say, for example, in our business, uh, we decided that, you know, we shall not promote certain things that we... are against dharma. And therefore, you know, we did not support a company which was in gambling, which was in liquor, which was in killing life in any form. They were in pesticides or they were, you know, uh, and so on. So anything that we thought was not in keeping with dharma and that is that dharma is what? Dharma is nothing but a set of rules by which nature operates. and. There are sub-rules which apply to any ecology, whether it be the animal world or the human world or the social setting, and what is harmful to you know, innocent people, what is harmful without returning anything by way of benefit is against dharma. So, dharma teaches you how two and two make four, and there is no way that you can try and alter that equation and be happy. So that we just joined the happiness wagon, so to say, you know, the bandwagon and um, we found it was amazing and such unexpected benefits came to us and maybe i'd like to share one with your please, audience please. Cool. so when we told our people that you know we will not do any business uh, so we were broke stock broke a part of our business stock broking and if somebody came to say that okay here is a very popular liquor company you are not consuming liquor but why don't you you know just put through a trade He said, no, even putting through a trade, that means, you know, we'll encourage somebody to buy, somebody to sell, etc., we don't want this trade. And so on, all categories, you know, we were just avoided. A few years later, in one of the social get-togethers, one of the employees told me, he says, Vallabhai, do you know that what is the result of all this? He said, I don't know. I mean, this was not to get any results. He said, all your employees know that our bosses are not after money. They would want income only if it is obtained in a certain manner, and as a result, so many terrible ideas which are popular on the street are not even suggested to you or brought to you, and how much happiness we all feel we don't know about you, but we feel extremely happy working for you because we know that we don't have to bother about doing anything wrong. Can you imagine the kind of sanctity and the security our business had because of this so we could live very comfortably in a in a business which is highly regulated and is prone to getting into trouble for almost 30 years i could you know do that business achieve great success um, and enjoy a lot of happiness so i thought that integrating dharma in more than one ways uh, you know creates uh, i could give you another example please please (laughs) that uh, like you know say the truth as it is so, in the stock market, uh, uh, we were into underwriting business and uh, you many times, as a part of uh, competitive pressure, you underwrote many things uh, which were not equally good, but uh, because you were parts of syndicate and the syndicate would pressure that no, no, you know, good and bad both go together and you must accept underwriting risk. So, is all right, we'll accept underwriting risk, but we don't have to pass it on to investors. So if we were promoting five ideas, and we thought two were not as good ideas, I told my people, let's mention to our investors that this is available, but may not be the best recommendation. And that was very simple. So many times, because you don't recommend, it doesn't mean people don't want to buy. People may still want to buy, but you know, we did our dharma by telling people as things were. And over a period of time, uh, we developed a reputation that if we put our name to an idea, it became a hot idea. So we lost little but gained tremendously and uh, So I think the fear of telling the truth is so overstated, uh, and that is overstated only because you have not tasted the power of truth and I must say you know, since you want to talk about India too, I'll just mention in passing here that our country. This motto is Satyamiya Vajayate, but I think 99% of the people don't know the exact meaning of what Satyamiya Jayate. Most people will say truth prevails in the end. Actually, the meaning is only truth prevails. Don't even try doing anything else, because Beautiful. if you are traversing from point A to point B, what is smarter than the straight line? So right. that's why I call truth, the shortest distance between two points. You want to go anywhere in life? follow
0: the truth excellent these are very very inspiring and very important so we can talk about something called uh, corporate ahimsa is that a fair term that there is a corporate yeah. ahimsa uh, and sure. and and what you are showing is that it's not only ahimsa principle in your personal life uh, to minimize harming but also in your corporate uh, sense and so we can say that uh, there is also something we might call corporate karma. There is a corporate karma. Uh, yeah. a corporate karma. Uh, the, now, now a question I have is: uh, individual has a uh, there is a jivatma. There is a there is a there is a container in which the karma is the account balance transmitted. Uh, now, in the case of a corporate entity, since there is no jivatma per se, it's a kind of a legal. Kind of a fictional entity, legally entity, legal entity, made up. So when a corporate entity does karma, uh, I've always wondered about this. If a cor- when a corporate entity does karma, and there's no individual who takes responsibility for it, everybody says this is corporate policy. Uh, the person in charge of dumping the stuff in the river says, I, "I'm just doing my job." Everybody says, "I'm just do, I didn't do anything. I did not kill any fish. I I just did my part of the job." Uh, so, but the collective. Result of the whole corporate machinery is causing harm. So, how do you feel the corporate karma account works when it's not an individual? Do you think it's with the directors? Do you think it's with the shareholders? Uh, Do you think it's with the employees or all of the above? Because I think this is a very important thing. If we want to really bring out corporate responsibility from a dharmic sense, we have to introduce terms like corporate ahimsa, corporate karma into the lexicon. And so, we should uh, think about what, what, how to explain all these. So please
1: give me some thoughts on this. Wonderful. In the legal world, when a person is accused, the court or the investigation is about whether there was intent. It's expressed as mens rea. you know, what was your intent. In the Dharmic tradition, uh, particularly Shraman tradition, there is this very important station in the mental movement that as you perceive things, as you understand things, and the time to respond to it comes, how will you respond react to the situation? Will it be based on complete understanding? Will it be based on your emotional and biased understanding? And it's called sambar. Uh, So that's how exactly it works in the corporate world also. So there are people who are in decision making and there are people who are not in decision making. There are people who understand how decisions are made and there are people who don't understand how decisions are made. So I think someone who is like a security person, who doesn't have the intellectual ability to understand what is going on, and he's extremely loyal as a security guard. I think he's not a part of corporate karma. Those people who want a higher bonus because the company is taking additional risk and taking additional risk in the wrong sense, they are not devoid of corporate karma. It comes to them also because they are doing it consciously. And I don't think that there is any difference between an organized body like a corporate and an individual, because at the end of the day we are formed by the universe and we dissipate back into the universe and I've experienced it personally, so I can say it with some authority at least, you know, when the world may accept it or not accept it, but that, you know, you are a collection of your biases. It is your biases about the understanding of the world that creates new life. And the corporate continuation is also the same thing, and they come to a bitter end or they come to a healthy end by being merging or just going on eternally, depending upon how excellent they are, how truthful they are. So I don't see a difference at all in the way corporates work and individuals work. So I think this is a, a very simplistic escape to say, oh, it is a corporate world and you know, I have to. I don't have to. I have choices. I gave up my accounting practice because it wasn't fulfilling, and so on. And you know, we gave up business because we thought it was wrong. And that doesn't mean that you become a pauper or you starve. You have to believe in a universal order that uh, if you follow the universal order, something else will visit you. And it has always happened. Every time I return from a personal course, I've always found instead of you know suffering a business loss, you know something good happens to me. I mean, I'm not promoting me in that sense, because it would be a very material world. But I think the fact that you are still, that your perception is sharper and keener, you pick up something extra in what is around you and which leads to profit. Because you behave in a certain manner, there's always people who are looking at you and they want to do business with you. Uh, on that account, you know, corporate karma Say, for example, one simple way of keeping my corporate account clean was, I requested, I encouraged, inspired my people to just follow one rule. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. It was very simple. That if you thought that, you know, you're holding back somebody's money, would you like your money held back? Don't hold it back. And so on. In every aspect of business, that was the principle that all our people followed. And we got handsome, handsome rewards.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Now, suppose, somebody is in a corporate position where he is junior and not in the, with the controlling vote. Uh, he is much senior and more intellectual than the security guard in the sense he does understand. So, he can't deny that I didn't know. But while he knows, he can't really uh, alter the outcome. He is a minority, He's sitting in a room. Now, uh, can he, can he say, uh, in, a, in, in, a, in good faith that look, I am uh, distancing myself from the reward, my share of the reward. I could not change the outcome, but I am going to not accept the reward that will come from this group decision. They are going to do this anyway. I have no choice. I am part of this, but I, w- I will… So, in other words, this is a case where you are renouncing the phal of the karma, but not so, able to avoid the karma. Is that a kind of a… Second best choice that you could make?
1: See, universal forces are so strong that no individual can change it, right? I think scriptures are full of stories. Buddha himself said that I could not prevent my own clan to come to complete annihilation as we know that the Shakyavanshya came to because they were very, you know, uh, fierce and they were pugnacious and they got into trouble all the time. Uh, Buddha prevented them, you know, from getting into war a couple of times, but eventually they fought themselves into, you know, complete annihilation. So you cannot alter the forces. But you know, I mean, for example, we have whistleblower policy currently, that those who will, you know, tell on what is going wrong in their organization. Or there are, you know, corporate governance rules where some people will make a disclosure and thereby they get exonerated when the law takes its course. So I think uh, there are various ways that we detach ourselves from the wrong. Not only if we can't prevent the wrong from happening, we can definitely get away from its rewards. And I think in many, many situations, you can just leave that company and, uh, you know, take the risk. Because you cannot uh, be to walk the path of truth. You have to take some risk. Uh, I can't disclose the name of a company or something. Uh, Some uh, company came to me at some point of time to seek advice. This company had a terrible reputation, but they had wonderful prospects because of the business that they were doing. And I suggested to them that, look, you know, just come clean. Don't worry about it. You don't have to manipulate anything. It was very hard for them to, you know, accept that. And uh, in the flow of things, they came to a very adverse pass. And uh, so they came to me seeking advice, said, what do we do? I said, no, this is truth testing you. You just disclose the truth and don't worry about it. From that day onwards, the tide just turned. They thought hell would you know, visit them. That didn't happen. They just stated what the facts were and things started to turn. And uh, the company has grown five times since then in a short period of time. So. We just, just fear that, you know, what will happen if I speak the truth, because it's your formation. You have a false perception that falsehood is, you know, going to create great results. If that were the case, oh, so many Charlton's and, you know, frauds would have succeeded in the world. Nobody has lasted long. It is the good companies and the great companies and the buffets and the mongers of the world who have done phenomenally well by just being straight and simple, you know, always emphasizing governance, uh, transparency and so on. So, I think there are more examples of dharma succeeding than failing. So, big success can come only when you follow the path of truth.
0: So, I have an idea. Could there be a mutual fund which uh, only invests in companies uh, where, where you, let's say, someone like yourself uh, forms a group that uh, evaluates the dharma index, the dharma rating, uh, like we have ratings of various kinds. And so, uh, on the scale of dharma rating, uh, you know, it publishes a dharma rating uh, uh, on, for major companies based on a criteria, weighted average and so on. And, the, and this is about not only ahimsa towards nature and so on, but also employee, how you treat employees, how, how honest you are, transparency, uh, lack of greed and whatnot. So, there could be various criteria. Uh, then do you feel that this dharma rating could result in, could be utilized to make a mutual fund of uh, companies that are uh, above a certain rating in in this dharma index, the dharma system. And so, people who don't, who are small investors, who want to be dharmic, who don't have the wherewithal to go and do all this investigation, can trust this kind of a system and say I will invest in this particular mutual fund because I or at least I will allocate a certain amount of my, uh, my wealth asset allocation. Or if I am putting money into the child's trust, I want the child to be absolutely clean and what he gets when he grows up should be absolutely dharmic so he's not entitled to money that was not made properly. So, there may be a market for people who actually would like such a fund.
1: In a way, there are funds in the world which uh, practice some of this without calling themselves dharmic Fund because they don't want to invest in companies which don't have good governments. Uh, but some of it can be very judgmental. And uh, uh, so, well, I'll think more about it. Uh, this has come to me in various ways. Uh, but since you know I have come out of active business, I I don't really cook new business ideas. Um, but uh, when someone like you says something, I'll think more about it. And I would say one thing that uh, comes to my mind immediately is that uh, you should define it uh, rather precisely. If you become very judgmental, uh, then the risk of you know, some of that judgment going wrong is higher. And uh, that's not a good thing from an investment point of view because the investor, while they want to be dharmic, I know by their nature they also want returns. So, when you become too narrow, too restrictive and you go wrong, uh, then, you know, you got neither the investment uh, plus you violated uh, the dharma in any case. But, so, I think with those few words or few riders, uh, I will think about it and maybe we can reconnect at some point point and time about it.
0: Yeah, and, and it needn't be absolute black-white dharma, non-dharma. It could be grades, uh, you know. So, obviously, yeah. Kentucky Fried Chicken should be not in the list. Uh, they are killing billions of chicken every year and certainly a liquor company or or somebody yeah. who is just abusing things. Uh, so, one would have to make some value judgments uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, so and come up with what, what are the weighted uh, violations, the different grades of violation of uh, dharma and perhaps uh, it will evolve over time. It will also um, become more mature, balanced and nuanced but at least it will be somewhat better than randomly buying things on a P-E ratio and uh, growth and so on. Uh, maybe there is a… but we'll leave it at that and perhaps we'll think about it some other time. I think based on those very
1: broad parameters and more defined parameters, uh, it's easier to do something like that.
0: We've discussed the individual realm uh, uh, and we've, of success and dharma and we've discussed the corporate realm. So, let's talk about uh, Bharat as a nation, India as a nation, uh, what do you think of India being right now very fragmented, you know, there is this north-south divide, there is this uh, regional separatist people, uh, there are all kinds of, there is a rich-poor divide. There are all sorts of divides in India and the importance of integrating like, you know, you need an integrated self, you need a holistic unified being, there also needs to be a, some kind of integration as the collective entity. So, what are your thoughts on integration of India?
1: I see a few things. Um, One is that uh, the dharmic tradition that we have, uh, encourages, you know, atmartham tu prithvim tyajet is a wonderful expression of how, you know, what India's culture is. That while you sacrifice a member for a family and a family for a village and a village for a state, but you sacrifice the whole world for your own salvation or your own liberation. So given that, uh, somehow, you know, the typical Indian uh, when it comes to aggregates, whether it be country and so on, uh, is uh, less excited. Secondly, since uh, independence came to India and uh, it was an extraordinary person like Sardar Patel, you know, you bound us all together and then there were certain presuppositions in the way constitution was to be implemented and then, you know, political interests intervened and so on. So I think some of those corrections have been happening since economic uh, reforms started because uh, political independence without economic independence doesn't mean much and that we have seen. Fortunately over the last 25 years since the great Narasimha Rao, you know, brought reforms to India, uh, I think there have been a lot of benefits. So I think this whole economic uh, uh, gain and uh, the desire to do better is proving to be a binding force. Uh, I think with this greater prosperity and economic uh, binding, one other thing that is happening is that there is a greater interest in India's heritage, which could be the next binding force. And you know, I mean, uh, you were very kind enough to launch our last film, uh, which we, you know, I was involved in with Ramji and Deepika Ji on history of yoga. And we are making another film to bring about uh, the basis and the foundation of Indian thought and heritage. And we, I do, it does seem that it will be a very, very powerful film, uh, which will make people aware that, you know, what were the signs, the thought, and a tremendous amount of evidence, uh, you know, of uh, good results coming out of that heritage uh, and why Indian heritage has survived, uh, you know, thousands of years and so on. So I think some of this pride will also be a binding force and, you know, act as a mitigant of a lot of the and the, you know, fractious uh, approach or fractious strategies of political and other entities that have, you know, uh, kind of uh, made India suffer very, very badly. So I see two things, uh, in realistically speaking, that some of our own dharmic teaching and, you know, the greatness of our own individual, uh, the atma, uh, so to say, uh, kind of uh, weakens our desire to be a part of an aggregate compared to you know what may be in other countries but on the other hand i see a lot of positive forces and i think people like you or you know to to an extent uh, uh, that in you know, our films and things like that i have also started another activity uh, one of my foundations is called deshapnai foundation where i am trying to create a movement that you know you are not a democracy unless you are a great citizen so you know how citizenship education has just not been you know, promulgated in India or you know, practiced in India. So we've started uh, a movement to you know, educate children uh, very properly uh, and it has uh, you know, got good response so far. So I, And I believe uh, uh, and I know that uh, there are several people who are taking steps. So I think uh, there are there's a good uh, you know you should be happy to note that uh, there is a greater enthusiasm in uniting India. These forces are obviously not very noticeable at this point of time, but uh, hopefully, if we continue to do well in the next five ten years, our confidence in our heritage will grow. So whatever we can do to grow the confidence in our heritage will be the biggest binding force. And I. Want to be very objective about it. That uh, just as we want to promote the goodness of our heritage, we must identify the villains in our heritage. That, you know, what forces made us, uh, you know, disintegrate or what made us weak. You must identify those causes very correctly and take corrective action. If you do not do that, then, you know, it will be a fool's world again.
0: This is wonderful. This is wonderful. And I am uh, glad you are part of it, I am part of it, this whole idea of uh, uh, investing in uh, heritage studies, uh, so that uh, from the higher level of university level people, media people, young people, uh, there is material available that is uh, good for our heritage. This is, I think, uh, a very good idea. And uh, you also correctly pointed out that economic success is necessary for that because when you have resources, uh, you can invest the resources into these sort of things. For instance, China is investing now into its grand narrative and they've started these Confucian institutes all over the world uh, to, to teach people about the greatness of China. And they, have been, they are sort of really into everything from theater to movies, the soft power of uh, China as a great civilization. And that's because they have the money and they can uh, afford to do so. Now, so this takes me to the next uh, uh, point. Uh, What is your, what are your views on India's economic prospects, especially vis-a-vis China? Because these are the two that are often compared, not vis-a-vis, you know, 1% growth rate in Europe or something. But we are really uh, wanting, we are a large population uh, in many ways competing with China economically because to feed a billion plus people takes a lot of resources. Uh, We have uh, neighborhood boundary issues and so all of this requires uh, wealth. So, economic growth is very important. How do you feel about the prospects for India in the future vis-a-vis China?
1: Somehow, I find that uh, if I study Indian history, that except for some people who had a grand vision of India and uh, a matching strategic uh, approach to it, generally we have been devoid of that strategic intent and strategic uh, implementation. Uh, we are lucky that you know we currently have a government uh, which is very, very good at strategic thinking, particularly you know when it comes to geopolitics. Some of the economic reforms are also a reflection of the strategic intent. So if, I think if we can continue with our strategic intent, uh, we will be able to get our rightful place uh, in the world. I think we should not benchmark ourselves against China because while China has benefited from some extraordinary leadership, uh, it started with Deng Xiaoping, and you know he laid out a blueprint, but uh, it's not uh, as they say that uh, being jealous of somebody who came first and you know defeating that person is more important than you know the pain of coming second. So I don't uh, harbor that pain, because India will do quite well even if we you know go uh, from you know 800 dollars per capita 10 15 years ago to even 3000 4000 dollars we will live very well i think what is india's opportunity vis-a-vis china is that uh, to enjoy lot more goodwill of the world to contribute a lot more to the softer aspects of our life uh, to you know give the software for life you know with yoga ayurveda or you know our adhyatma tradition Something where, you know, in, in those areas, India will be far ahead of China, I'm sure. So I think uh, by getting economic prosperity to a certain level that where, you know, we are not preoccupied with subsistence and we can uh, do more, uh, India's chance is not only to become prosperous but to, you know, give happiness and the tools of happiness to the world. And I see a serious, serious potential for that. Uh, I don't know if enough is being done. It clearly, Modi ji has been able to, you know, get uh, yoga recognized in a big way, which is wonderful thing. But we need more of uh, those kind of actions.
0: So, uh, what do you think of, uh, in the economic sense, what do you think of the growth of population? How do you feel about the India's growth of population? Now, I remember when I was a young boy, you know, many decades ago, They were concerned about the population problem of India, uh, that India won't be able to feed itself and there were all these attempts to have birth control, population control and then they were relaxed. Now, the population is 2.5 times what it was at that moment. Uh, We are able to feed ourselves thanks to the green revolution and things of that sort. Uh, However, do you think it can continue indefinitely? Is population growth a liability? that we are avoiding, we don't want to deal with it. Uh, we say that uh, there is a youth dividend. But you know, if there are 20 million youth ca- entering the job market, but there aren't 20 million new jobs being created, then there is also a misery being added. And so, are we just delaying this problem because it's politically very difficult to deal with it? Do, do you feel that that's an issue that uh, we haven't addressed?
1: I think to an extent what you are saying is absolutely right. The population dividend or demographic dividend as popularly known applies to when that manpower is skilled uh, and you know capable of you know taking up highly skilled jobs and difficult jobs. But that's not the case in India so I think uh, we should not fool ourselves that we are enjoying a demographic dividend. Yes, uh, good thing is that uh, the reforms that, uh, that we have seen in the recent times, they are very difficult decisions because in the immediate term, they all lead to deceleration of growth as has been happening. and so it's a hugely politically risky uh, you know thing to do. But you need well determined people to do that, and that has been done. Uh, I think there is this talk of doubling farmer income. So yeah, I think if we can double farmer income, that would happen only by you know improving agricultural practices. Uh, soil testing and irrigation and better use of water and seed and so on, the potential to grow our agricultural output at, you know, compounding at 4%, 5%, 6% is eminently possible. But we will need multi-concerted, you know, uh, a very concerted uh, effort to get that done. So we need a green revolution number two. Uh, We need more skilling. I think uh, population control of the kind that we saw in the 70s will never happen again. Uh, Fortunately, uh, urban population in terms of uh, stationary population because there's a lot of immigration into or influx into the cities, so cities are growing, Uh, but the city population itself is not uh, uh, procreating uh, as many children as before. So I think we are not bad at this point of time if we can continue the economic reforms Most important reform that is yet to happen in a major way is what we call ease of doing business. So some of the GST stuff and technology, et cetera, creates ease of doing business. But, you know, removing the discretionary power in the powers that be or the administration that be is vital, vital. So unless India, you know, improves its ranking by 50, 60 points on the global index, we will not do very well. I think once we you know add meaning to the economic uh, freedom that we have you know of certain measure now, it has to become very, very meaningful. even if we will not be very our population will not be very educated. but because of the long mercantile history, long social mores history that we have, our people will be able to do extremely well. I have just no doubt if China has been able to unleash that sense of enterprise, even at lower level. There's a large public corporates. Uh, I think at the individual level, Indians will do even better than Chinese. So, I think not maybe in the next 5-10 years, but over next 20 years, India could surprise the world both with its soft power and material power. But we need continued reforms and we need economic freedoms of a much greater order.
0: That's wonderful. So, there's a cyclical relationship between economic reforms, economic growth rate and prosperity and then uh, uh, lower birth rates. Because as you said uh, in the urban population there is lower birth rates, we need to help farmers uh, economically. Can we also add to that mix uh, the role of uh, educating women uh, as a kind of a force in lowering birth rate? Because also, you know, when you look at the rate of birth, uh, better educated women have fewer children. So, that also is a factor uh, maybe we need to focus on that particular issue uh, in order to lower the birth rate. Because as you said, we cannot do it by force. That just won't work and we don't want to uh, do that. Yes, it sir. has to be voluntary and it has to be the result of better education, women's, women's uh, role being improved, better economic opportunities.
1: I think in a way it is India's time because uh, India has been able to leapfrog because of uh, its uh, technology industry, because some of the great prime ministers that we have had, that uh, the digital world is going to disseminate this right kind of education a lot more easily and a lot more deeply. And today only, I was uh, talking to some of the people involved in the digital payment world, and that how in three years' time, four years' time, just one application created by you know some of this team will do more business transactions than maybe MasterCard or Visa do uh, in the United States. So I think another phenomenon has been Bollywood. Bollywood has done more good to India than bad and uh, movies like Dangal or movies like Three Years, the kind of social messaging they have done uh, is extraordinary. I mean, uh, you may not be aware but Dangal uh, no, I saw Dungal. Yeah, 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 he I, I, well I, I, men. yeah. It has done more business in China than yeah. the rest
0: of the world I think Dungal is a great movie. I have recommended it to all the young people, really enjoyed it. So, my final uh, question to you is, how would you rate uh, Modi's government so far uh, in terms of uh, the economy, especially the economy? Uh, what do you think they have done well and what are some important challenges? I mean, they have done some very, Provocative things like the demonetization, the GST and so on. What is your take on that?
1: I think their strategic intent is, uh, is superb. Uh, their will to, you know, bring about change is superb, absolutely. Um, and uh, when you take a plethora of actions, a number of actions, some of them will not work as well as others. So, I think uh, that they should be, uh, you know, not accused of uh, uh, what we call making any serious mistake there. Uh, but I think uh, the businessman has to feel more comfortable with the government, which is not the case today. So I think that ease of doing business, what I call generally, I think uh, that has to improve dramatically. Inevitably, when you are trying to you know change a system which has been corrupt, which has been inefficient for you know, for so many decades, uh, it takes time, and there will be a lot of bad elements. But you will have to show trust. The government will have to show trust in businessmen and in the citizen, and you know ease off some of the administrative and uh, tax uh, pressures on the people. Uh, once that happens, I think a lot of these economic reforms will be taken upon that means people will take greater risk. So today, our challenge is that uh, uh, we are working on one and a half engine, uh, which is like public spending. And private sector is spending very selectively. This private sector has to take the lead. So, we must take definite steps that, you know, how do we get the animal spirits going again in the private sector? That cannot be deferred for any longer. Uh, so, it has been like that for the last four or five years. Uh, we have about one and a half year to the next election. And I think we need to put serious uh, thought to how to create a very enabling environment, you know, what I I've kept saying again and again ease of doing business
0: wonderful so you you would consider overall in the balance uh, modi government has done a good job
1: definitely i think uh, the sense of nationalism some of the programs like you know swachh bharat they are such seminal program because it's not only swachh bharat it's also patriotic bharat but I, you know i call my movement and movement from apathy to ownership he has already started that kind of movement. So, I think uh, on various uh, grounds, this government has done uh, brilliantly. You, a government can always do more. So, I mean, I just pointed to some of the areas. Yeah,
0: I agree with you. I think that uh, this is the first government in many years where they've taken on some issues very honestly, very seriously. Not quick result oriented. Maybe some decisions have a short term uh, kind of a, uh, uh, you know, price that people are paying. And it's unpopular like the demonetization. But you know, if you can clean up all the cash economy and turn it into electronic, uh, long term you are going to get lots of value. So, I think they've made some risky calls. But the ability to take risk in a democracy depends on how much concentration of power one has. Uh, So, you know, in the early days after independence, Nehru, Indira Gandhi and all, they had so much concentration of power, they could have done so much more. Uh, at the time when we were this one or two percent growth rate kind of economy. They could have done very bold things and we would be way ahead of China by now if we had done that. So, Modi is starting with some of the handicaps uh, because of the past, whatever we have. But I think we need to encourage the government, we need to make this government last long. This is the kind of thing that uh, we cannot afford a disruption where somebody else were to come in and do something different, then we are back and forth, you know. This continuity has to maintain. So, I am also Absolutely. very happy that they are consolidating their majority in the Rajya Sabha, which gives them the ability to take bold action. And, and we, have to, tr- we have to trust honest people uh, to, to give them the power and say, okay, you now take bold action, we are behind you. I think that's a… I am very glad we, we agree on that. So, now Absolutely. I want to, in closing, uh, I want to give you the floor to address our people. So, just to let you know, we have uh, just crossed 3 million followers on Facebook. They are watching this. Uh, 65 to 70% of them are between the age of 18 and 35. So, you are addressing the youth. Uh, They are in many countries of the world, most of them of Indian origin, but not all. Uh, And in India also, when I do a breakdown of the the demographics and the, uh, you know, analytics, Uh, I find that a heavy concentration are in Karnataka, Maharashtra, uh, Andhra Pradesh, Gujarat. So, uh, this is not the sort of northern belt dominated thing. This is very distributed all over. And then there are people in Dubai, there are people in Malaysia, Hong Kong, Belgium, England, all kind of places. So, given this, given this wide, uh, (laughs) broad uh, floor, I really would like to, have you, request you to give your closing remarks on whatever thoughts you have.
1: What I am currently fascinated by is the power of selecting the right rules. Uh, When we, you know, whether we are sick, whether we have a problem in, uh, at our home in terms of um, electricity is not working, furniture is broken, something goes wrong in in the culinary area. How an expert comes and applies first principles and gets things right. So also life has a science. The teaching of dharma in a very secular, secular is a bad word, but uh, in a fundamental sense, uh, when we apply those rules, not half-heartedly, as we started this program with that, you know, people are two faces, not in that manner. When you put abiding faith in what you know to be correct rules, what tremendous rewards you get in life. Whether material success of an extraordinary proportion comes to you or not, I can tell you that the kind of peace, the kind of happiness, the kind of power you feel by just following those fundamental rules of, you know, nature called dharma are amazing. Because of the marketing phenomenon that this world has, uh, many times we get confused because the numbers seem to be going in one way or the other you know i mean not uh, in line with what you think just neglect it just don't bother about it have you know abiding uh, faith in what you believe to be dharma and uh, the rewards are tremendous the second thing i uh, it's uh unconnected thought to my first but uh, dr Sahib, uh, uh you are the right person to you know uh, think more about it and talk more about it that uh, What is unique about India? I think something extraordinary about India was that uh, probably this was chosen by nature to be the landmass where human beings discovered the potential or the possibility to have perfect knowledge, not half knowledge. This land never worshipped half knowledge, never marginal knowledge. You did not speak up The Rishi did not speak up whether he was talking about Ayurveda or he was talking about Adhyatma or any other area until they discovered perfect knowledge and that the path to perfect knowledge was always through within oneself. So this whole yoga philosophy of achieving perfect knowledge and what happens when you don't have perfect knowledge and yet you have power or use half knowledge to achieve power unfortunately happened in other parts of the world. I don't want to blame anybody because this is all nature's doing, that half knowledge will tend to be hegemonistic. It wants to create control because it's so excited about half knowledge. You have never seen perfect knowledge ever get excited. It is always compassionate. It does not copyright. It does not patent uh, its knowledge because it's not excited about it. It just sees as, you know, how wonderful, how lucky I am to have got this perfect knowledge. That's how Buddha was, that's what Mahavir was, that's how all our rishis were. So I think uh, making this insight, you know, better understood that, uh, and it is not that only an Indian can achieve perfect knowledge. Anybody can achieve perfect knowledge by following a set of rules and let people from all parts of the world see this potential to achieve perfect knowledge, perfect happiness for oneself and create perfect harmony in the world. I think. That would be wonderful. And Dr. Sabha, I appeal to you to think more about it and talk more about it.
0: Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Vallabhanshali ji. It's been a pleasure and an honor to discuss this with you. And I'm sure our listeners, our viewers, our followers will love this. And I look forward to seeing you in Mumbai. I'll be there in India in uh, the second part of, uh, second half of November and early December. And of course, in the IIT Madras conference uh, December 22nd uh, okay. inauguration, we are looking forward to seeing you. But I would love to come to Mumbai before that and spend some time with you. Also visit the Good center course. that you have built and uh, it would be a delight. And on that note, I want to thank you for coming. And it's been a real honor. And we'll continue being in touch. Indeed, sir. Thank you. Thank you. And namaste to everybody.
1: Namaste.